0: Okay, good afternoon, everyone. I'm really honored to be here. And, of course, it's Chodesh Adar. So you have to smile. That's the first thing. The most important thing is smile. Even though it's very difficult for people to smile, nobody likes to smile, people like the month of Av. You know, you could be depressed. You could walk around like a grouch. And, you know, it it makes a lot of people feel good if they could have an excuse to be depressed. But once, you know, Adar comes, who wants to be happy? It's very hard to be happy. But, of course, there's a mitzvah to be happy. And even Reb Chaim Knievsky, people know, you know, he spent the whole day learning. But nevertheless, he had a good sense of humor. Actually, one of the best Reb Chaim jokes was uh, somebody, one, you know, who's Reb Chaim Knievsky's uncle? Do you know Reb Chaim Knievsky's uncle? Chazoy Nish, right? You ever hear the name of Chazoy Nish? And Chazoy Nish was one of the G'day Hadar. And a man once came with his son to visit... The Chazaynish. And okay, the kid is bored out of the conversation. He doesn't understand what's going on. So there's a coin on the table. And I have to give you a little bit of a backstory before before we go on with the joke. So I have to, you have to actually learn something to understand the joke. So, you ever hear of the Panovich Yeshiva? Panovich Yeshiva is like one of the most eminent Yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. It was built by the Panovich Arav, Rabbi Yosef Shalom Kahanamon, who was one of the greatest builders of Tyre in our century, also one of the greatest fundraisers. Obviously, if you're going to build Tyre, if you're going to build Moistos, you got to know how to raise money. He was the best fundraiser. The joke goes, you know, there's a question, is there life on Mars? It's a question, it's a philosophical question, right? So the the joke goes that obviously there's no life on Mars because if there was, the Panavich would have fundraised there. Okay, fine. So... He could he could, you know, he was good at, at that art. The kid was playing with the coin on the table, and the kid picks up the coin, he's looking at it, next thing he knows the coin is in the kid's mouth. You have you have younger siblings at home? Mm-hmm. And the next thing though, know, he swallows the coin. Yeah? You ever happen to any of your brothers or sisters? They swallowed a coin. I remember I used to live in Queens, one shop this morning, one shop this morning, my son. Should bless him. He swallowed the coin. I remember going, <laughs> going for an x ray, and you see this little five year old kid, and all you see is this shiny penny in his stomach. Anyway, Baruch Hashem passed. The kid swallowed the coin. Everyone's panicking. Call out Salah, call out Salah, call out Salah. And the Chazonish says, Not a problem. We'll just call the Panevich Huh? Yeah, he could get money out of anybody.
1: <laughs> anyway.
0: So, Chodesh Adar, it's a mitzvah to be happy. Actually, there was once a man who was drowning, and a Rebbe passed by, and and they said, Rebbe, Rebbe, save him, save him. The Rebbe's not a swimmer. So the Rebbe just said, when you drown, send regards to the Leviasan. You know the Leviasan, the big fish? So the Rebbe made this joke, send regards to the Leviasan when you drown. So people were say, how can you be so cruel? The man is drowning, he's dying, and you're making a joke. So the man, he was about to drown, but when he heard the joke, all of a sudden he became infused with strength and kayach. He began to swim, 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 and it saved his life. So sometimes the most important thing in life when you're in a difficult situation is you have to smile, as difficult as it is, and you have to live the simcha. And sometimes that is the greatest way to extricate oneself from a difficult situation. Somebody just showed me on uh, Shabbos an amazing thing. Do you remember the story of when Haman came in the morning to Achashverosh? And he says, you know, Haman was coming with his plan. What was his plan? That we're going to hang Mordechai. So just then Achashverosh came with his own agenda. Achashverosh says to Haman, you know, what should I do? There's a man in my kingdom that I would like to honor and Haman, of course, thinks that it's referring to him. So Haman says, let him ride the royal horse, and let him wear the royal clothing. And Aphir says, great, great idea! Vaasechain. <laughs> You're Sfardi, right? I don't know the Sfardi in Megillah Sester. I know the Ashkenazi, so I'm not gonna, not gonna lean it for you. But Vaasechain, la Mordechai ha Yehudi ha b'shar Go do it to Mordechai. So Haman goes running to Mordechai, And who remembers? What was Mordechai doing at the time? He was davening. And the Gemara says, Haman waited until Mordechai finished davening. He then told him the news that Haman will be parading Mordechai around, riding the royal horse, wearing the royal clothing. Isn't that odd? That Haman should wait until Mordechai finished davening? Why didn't Haman interrupt the davening? Imagine that. You know, Mordechai is slach l'ano v'nu kichotanu mecha'anu ki And Haman is standing there watching Mordechai Davin until he probably down the long shmanes, right? Until he takes the three steps back and he says, oh, shalom. And then Haman says, Okay, Haman says, The good news is for you, I'm going to be leading you through the streets of Shushan. Why didn't Haman interrupt Mordechai? says the Benesh Chai, Chacham Yosef Chayim. If Haman would have interrupted Mordechai and told him the good news, then Mordechai, after hearing the good news, would have started davening again. And then he would have davened besimcha. And if you daven besimcha, your tefillahs are very effective. This way, Haman didn't tell Mordechai the good news. Mordechai was crying, he was in pain, and when you're in pain and you're crying, your tefillahs are not as accepted as when you daven out of joy. And this was shocking to me, because I thought that a person's tefillah is much more accepted when they're in pain and when they're suffering. And the Chai says, no, the most effective way to daven to Hashem is out of joy. And therefore Haman did not want Mordechai to have this joy, and have his tefillahs answered. So I would like to share with you this afternoon a revolutionary approach to Megalas Esther. I know you all know the story, but you never heard it this way. The first thing we need to know is that after Esther became the queen, the possek says, Vayihi And it was after these matters. And Rashi's bothered. What does it mean after these matters? What matters? Says Rashi after Esther became the queen, only then Haman rose to power. Says Rashi, from here we learn, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Es Yisrael, Kane, Emkein, Lohem, Refua Tchila." God does not bring difficulty, challenge, suffering, till he first creates the remedy. And this is an amazing concept. How often in life we have a difficulty, we have a challenge, and we think, there's no way out, it's impossible, there's no remedy, there's no way to be cured, there's no way to be healed. Says the stipler going from here, we learn, a person should never be hopeless, a person should never feel helpless, a person should never think there's no way out. Not only is there always a way out, but Hashem creates the way out before bringing the problem. Remember the story about Hagar? Hagar had this son, Ishmael, and they were in the desert, and they were dying of thirst. Ishmael was dying of thirst. And Hagar puts the kid on the side because she couldn't bear to see his suffering. Do you remember what happened? Water came. Does the Pastor say God brought a camel with water after the fact? The Pastor says Hashem uncovered her eyes and she saw the water. The water was there the whole time. The water was there before the dehydration. The solution to a problem has been created before Hashem brings the problem. So it is our responsibility then to daven Hashem and to have emunan bitachai. Not that Hashem should solve a problem in our life. But Hashem should help us recognize and see The solution that was already created before the problem came. And on that note, I want to draw your attention to the end of Megillah, Sester. This is my favorite thought on the Megillah. Okay, so I'm going to, first, you have, what's your schedule? You have Limule Kodesh in the morning? Yeah? Or the opposite? Depends. Okay. So you have Limuday Kodesh. You learn English, right? You learn the language of this country. English. I'm going to teach you some English now. How do you say in English, second to last? Second to last. Very good. Penultimate.
1: Penultimate? Yeah, that's
0: the... Pen, yeah, the principal speaks, Mahal speaks English. How do you say third to last in English? That's a tough Anti-penultimate, okay? The anti-penultimate. So you <laughs> something today, right? It was worth worth coming to school today. <laughs> the third to last pasuk in Megillah Esther says as follows. You ready? haMelech mas that achashverosh taxed the people. That is the third to last pasuk in the Megillah. And the question is, this is the most bizarre way to end the Purim story that achashverosh taxes the people. Why would I care that achashverosh taxes the people? This is not a historical document. This is not a political document. Why was Megillah Esther written? Who knows? What was the main purpose that the Megillah was written? To remember the story. To remember the story. La nisa, to publicize the miracle, to show Hashem's divine intervention, to show Hashgachah Pratis. This is not historical work. It's not the newspaper. Why does the Megillah and that Achashverosh tax the people? Who cares? If he taxed the people. So I want to share with you an idea. This is an awesome idea. Never forget this. You have to bear this in mind whenever you read the news, whenever you hear anything that happens in the world, always remember what we're about to learn. We're going to start with Haman. Haman built the tree. Does anybody remember? Haman built the tree, the Pasik says, "Asher loi, that Haman prepared for yeah, Mordechai. But you're right. Because the Gemara Darshins, of course he prepared it for him. It should just say, "Al ha'ez asher the tree that he prepared. Why does it have to say for him? So the Gemara says, it looked like he was preparing it for Mordechai, but in reality, he was really preparing it for himself. What does that mean? That means Hashem, when Haman is making the gallows, Hashem could have conveniently sent down a lightning bolt and zapped Haman, and then we would have had Purim. But Hashem didn't do that. What did Hashem do? Hashem said, I'm not afraid of Haman. In fact, you give me the Rasha, you give me his plan, you give me his gallows, and I'll use his plan and his gallows to accomplish what I want to accomplish. That's another level of Hashgacha. So let me give you an example. There was a man by the name of Moses. You ever hear of Moses. Moshe Rabbeinu.
1: <laughs>
0: it wasn't so funny, but yeah, okay. <laughs> and Moshe Rabbeinu, he's a little baby. You know, actually, tonight is Moshe's birthday. Tonight is Zayin Adar. So it's a good day to speak about him. Right? You knew that? Moshe Rabbeinu was born on Zayin Adar. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu, so a, if he was born on Zayin Adar, when was his brismillah? On Purim, there you go. Some Mikubalim write the power of Purim is because of the day of the Brismila of Mahesh You know, there's an idea that the Jewish neshama comes down at the time of Brismila. What is the holiest neshama that ever came down? Mahesh That's why Purim is so holy. That was the day of the neshama of Mahesh Rabbeinu. But that's just an aside. That's just a distraction. So Mahesh is floating in the Nile. Why was he floating in the Nile? Why did his mother take care of him? Because Paro made a decree. Paro got official word from his astrologers. Remember? Call Habain Hayiloid Paro got word that any boy that is born on this day, we gotta drown him, we have to throw him in the Nile. Now, a little trivia question, you ready? What do you call a baby floating in the Nile? You call him lunch? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I once
0: went to Phoenix, Arizona I spoke there and they took me to an aquarium in the aquarium they had something called an albino alligator a white alligator okay you know, you know what those are? it's one of the most frightening things in the world they are so fast so I was in the room and the crocodile not in the room with the alligator but I was, there was a big glass, and the alligator was on the other side of the room and the trainer walks in with a slab of meat on the stick he goes like that the alligator, 10 feet away, jumps, grabs the meat, and back in its spot, quicker than your eye could see it. That's how fast the alligator moves. So when a baby is floating in the Nile River, you call the baby lunch. That's what happened to all the millions of Jewish babies that were floating in the Nile. And Paroi, why did Paroi want to drown all the Jewish babies? Because he got official word that on this day, the Jewish Savior is going to be born and he needs to eradicate the Jewish Savior. And Hashem is laughing, and Hashem ayim. He says, Taro, you think you're going to destroy the Jewish Savior? Watch this. Who was bathing in the river? The daughter of the Pharaoh. What was her name? Basia. Why was she bathing in the river? She was converting, Rashi says. And she hears a baby crying. Batach Allah, she had mercy on the child. And she stretches out her arm, and she takes in the baby. And she brings the baby into the palace. And that night at 2 a.m., baby Moshe wakes up Basya. And she's had enough. She knocks on the door. Dad, you know, this baby is really waking me up. Would you mind taking a turn? All right, Basya, by the way, where'd you find the baby? Ah, uh, I found it in the night. No- what? Dan, he's such a cute kid. Just hold the kid. And, and Paroy is rocking Moshe Rabbeinu to sleep. And then the baby wants some food. So Basia says, Why don't you go out to CVS and get some formula for the kid? Who took Moshe Rabbeinu into the palace? Paroy. Who paid for his food? Paroy. Who paid for his diapers? Paroy. Who pay, who took him to kindergarten? Paroy. By the way, the Ibn Ezra writes, That why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to grow up in the royal palace? Because if he would have grown up with the rest of the Jewish people, he would have had a slave mentality, he would have had low morale, and he never would have been a melech, a king. But now that he grew up among royalty, the pharaoh trained Moshe Rabbeinu to be a king. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu was the king of the Jewish people. Who taught him how to be a king? Pharaoh. The Pharaoh thought he was destroying Moshe Rabbeinu. Not only did he not destroy Moshe Rabbeinu, Paroi created Moshe Rabbeinu. If not for Paroi, we never would have had a Moshe Rabbeinu. We never would have had the Torah. You know the Mishnah. Paroi, Kibel, Torah, Misenai. No, it doesn't say that. But without Paroi, we never would have been able to receive the Torah. So listen carefully. Paroi thought he was putting an end to the Jewish people. Not only is he not putting an end to the Jewish people, he is creating the leader of the Jewish people. Without Paroi, there would be no Mashravi. Man plans, God exactly. Let me give you a few examples. But the reason why we say man plans and God laughs is because Hashem takes the plan of the Russia and he uses that plan to carry out what he wants to accomplish. I want to give you a few examples from Megillah. So, Ahasuerus has a problem with his wife. Vashti. She's not listening to him, yeah? Uh, Ahasuerus um, orders, ah, Vashti, come! Display yourself! I'm not coming. We know she grew a tail, she grew a pimple, whatever the story was. So what does Ahasuerus do? Now this is not America in 2023. This is Persia. 2,000 years ago. I assume today in Iran. Who's the the leader over there? Ayatollah. Ayatollah. If Mrs. Ayatollah doesn't listen to the Ayatollah, what do you think happens to her? Nobody knows. That's the answer. Nobody knows what happens. He moves on to the next one. Probably every Monday and Thursday there's another Mrs. Ayatollah over there. 2,000 years ago in Persia... If you don't listen to the king, that's the end of you, right? So, Ahasuerus has a problem with his wife. Who? What does he do? Does he hang her? Does he kill her? No. Ahasuerus asks the advice of his officers. I understand. We well, think it's a democracy? You think there's a congress in Persia? Why is Ahasuerus asking the advice of his advisors? Listen carefully. The pasuk says, "Because kichen vayoymer haMelech, the king said, 'Lachachamim yoydeho itim' to the sages who knew the times. Kichen devar haMelech, this was the law in Persia that the king could call all the shots, but not if it's relevant to him. If it's relevant to the king, then the king has to ask the advice of his advisors. So let's fast forward to the end of the story." Remember the end of the story. Ahasuerus is angry. He steps out. Haman, what happened? Haman took a misstep with Esther. And all of a sudden Ahasuerus came in, and he sees this is going on in the palace. And what does Ahasuerus do? He doesn't know what to do. So a man who advised Ahasuerus what to do? Charvoina. Charvoina says, Gam, hine, What about the tree that Haman made? Fifty amos tall. What does Ahasuerus say? Teluhu, Allah, hang him! I don't understand. Hang him? Why doesn't Ahasuerus have to ask the advice of his advisors? Why is Ahasuerus making the call himself? I thought in the beginning of the story, he couldn't make the call. Why in the end of the story, all of a sudden, Ahasuerus is able to make the call? The answer is, there was new legislation passed in Persia. There was a man by the name of Memuchan. And the Mukhan tells Akashvirish what kind of insane law isn't. You're the king of the world. You know the Gemara says that Akhsverh ruled over the entire known world. You're the king of the world, and you can't decide what to do with your own wife. From now on I propose Yeit Dvar, Malchus Milafanav. From now on, you call all the shots. And a new law was passed in Persia that Ahasuerus never has to ask the advice of his advisors. Who's Memuchan? Haman. Thank you, Haman, for digging your own grave. Because later on in the story, when Haman takes a misstep with Esther, and Ahasuerus gets angry at him, he doesn't have to take it to the Congress, he doesn't have to take it to the Assembly. Ahasuerus calls his own shots, he makes the unilateral decision, and Ahasuerus says... Taluhu I love and the rest is history. So who's now? Why did Haman want to propose that Akazir should be able to call his, his own shots? Okay, good. Actually, if you look, there's a commentary on Magillus Esther called Targum Sheni. In Targum Sheni, it says, Haman wanted that Ahasuerus should call all the shots because Haman had a daughter. And Haman wanted to kill Vashti. And Ahasuerus should marry Haman's daughter. And then Haman would be elevated uh, in, in the kingdom. And Hashem made a miracle that a, uh, I'm going to say it in Hebrew, hopefully you could translate, a re'achra. you know what re'achra means? Bad
1: smell. No.
0: Okay, you said it, emanated from the mouth of the daughter of Haman. And Akashirosh was like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> and he killed her. So Haman thought he was passing the law to advance his own cause. Meanwhile, Haman is digging his own grave because later when he takes the misstep and Ahasuerus says, hang him, Ahasuerus doesn't have to bring it to the assembly because thank you very much, Memuchan Haman, you've already legislated that Ahasuerus calls all the shots. This is the central theme of Megillah Sester. Listen carefully. The central theme of the Megillah is not what you thought, that there are many coincidences that When you add all the pieces together, we're obviously miraculous. It's much more than that. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us, give me more credit than needing your man in the White House and your Prime Minister or your official to help the Jewish people. You could give me the biggest Russia in the world. You could give me the most wicked person in the world and I could carry out my plan with his evil scheme. That's what happened to Haman. Now watch this. This is a miraculous perspective of the Megillah. I was learning Sefer Ezra. Sefer Ezra is about ten years after the Purim story. The Jewish people are returning to rebuild. Who, who remembers which base Hamikdash? Second base. Very good. And at the time, Achashverosh already died, and who's the king of Persia? Darius. Darius. And the Jewish people turned to Darius and said, Darius, we would like to build the second temple. So Darius says, No problem. Go ahead. Bring it, build it. So the Jews said, we have no money. So Darius said, okay, fine. You have no money. The Pasek says, Darius opened up the royal treasury. And he gave all the tax money to the Jewish people to fund the building of the second Besamikdash. And I ask you, where do you think he got all the tax money from to rebuild the second Beis HaMikdash? That is why the Megillah ends that Achashverosh taxed the people. Because what happened to that tax money? Achashverosh died. Daryavesh inherited it. He gave it to the Jewish people and he financed the building of the second Beit HaMikdash. Now watch how the whole Purim story comes full circle. How does the Megillah begin? Ahasuerus is having a party. What's he celebrating at the party? That the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. And the Navi Yirmiya said that in 70 years it will be rebuilt. And the 70 years are up and it's not being rebuilt. So probably the Beis Hamikdash will never be rebuilt. So Ahasuerus starts off the Purim story. He's celebrating what he thought was the eternal ruin of the Beis Hamikdash. And by the end of the story, he's become the chief fundraiser to build the second Beis HaMikdash. But it's much more than that. Because if you were to ask Achashverosh, Pal, what are you celebrating at your party? He would have said, I am celebrating the eternal ruin of the Beis HaMikdash. And Hashem is laughing, Men Hashem You think you're celebrating the eternal ruin of the Beis HaMikdash? You're going to call Vashti. She's not going to listen to you. You're going to marry Esther. You're going to have a kid, Darius. You're going to collect taxes. You're going to give him all the money. And you're going to build the second B'esamechdash. This party will build the second B'esamechdash. The way Hashem operates is Hashem takes the tzara, or the difficulty, or the challenge. Not only has Hashem created the remedy before bringing the challenge, sometimes, not sometimes, always hidden impossible for us to understand the Yibbam Hashem uses the enemy to bring the greatest salvation that is what we see at the end of the perm story the taxes of akhashveirish went to fund the building of the second basilica let's start bringing this closer to our times you ever hear of lakewood yeshiva mm-hmm. biggest yeshiva in america right anybody know who built the lakewood yeshiva With Aaron Cutler. That's what people say. He built it 50, 60, 70 years ago. It actually goes way back. There was a man and a woman, and this goes back 500 years ago. They were in the Iberian Peninsula. You know where the Iberian Peninsula is? Spain, Portugal, Italy, and... They had this great mission. The mission was reconquesta. Reconquesta meant they were going to to rid the Iberian Peninsula from all the Muslim infidels and remove all Jews from the Iberian Peninsula so the Jewish people should never have a haven. The Jewish people should never have a homeland. The Jewish people will never be able to build yeshivas. And in 1492, August 2nd, anybody know the Hebrew date? Tisha B'Av, 1492. The Spanish Inquisition went into effect where 300,000 Jews were banished from the Iberian Peninsula. Isabella Ferdinand said the Jewish people will never have a haven, they'll never have a homeland. On that day, they get a knock on the door. What do you want, Christopher, already? How many crazy ideas do you have? Now this time, uh, king, queen, I have a great idea. I'm going to expand Spanish power to the other end of the world. I'm going to discover America. You're crazy. No, Spain will rule the globe. Really? Yeah, I have three ships parked in the harbor. What are the three ships? The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. So what do you need from us? I just need you to finance my voyage and Ferdinand and Isabella financed Columbus's expedition to America. We have documentation that on August 2nd, Tishabov, a cabin boy, a Jewish cabin boy was leaving on a ship out of Spain. And as he's being expelled from Spain, he waves goodbye to three ships parked in the harbor. You know what they were? The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. Christopher Columbus set sail the very next day to discover America. Because Hashem said, Ferdinand, Isabella, you think the Jewish people will never have a homeland? You think Torah will never be built? You think there will never be yeshivas? Not only will there, you will finance and pay for the discovery of the greatest haven the Jewish people have ever had in their history. So here is an example of Hashem taking the enemy, taking the Ferdinand, taking Isabella and utilizing them, co-opting them, hijacking them to bring salvation for the Jewish people. But let's bring it even closer to our times. 1948. The War of Independence. It is a fact the Jewish people were losing the war. We didn't have enough supplies, we didn't have enough troops, we didn't have enough ammunition. There was a madman. Now, does anybody know, in the last 200 years, which country was the greatest enemy of the Jewish people?
1: Germany.
0: Most people would say Germany. They killed 6 million Jews. And that's what I always thought. But you can make the case that the greatest enemy of the Jewish people in the last 200 years was Russia. By far. People think Germany created... Systematic extermination of the Jewish people. The Russians created it. They just weren't that good at it. It takes them some time. You know, you know, in Russia, if you want to buy a car, so you put, you give, you go to the dealership, you put down $30,000, and they say, no problem. In 2054, come back, we'll give you the car. So the guy said, you want, said, come back in the morning or the afternoon? He said, are you crazy? It's 2050, no, the plumber's coming in the morning. That's how things work in Russia. Things are backlogged. It takes them a lot of time. But the plan in Russia in the 19th century is they were going to exterminate one-third of the Jewish people, expel one-third of the Jewish people, and one-third would be assimilated. Anybody know how many people Stalin killed of his own people? Stalin killed 20 million Russian citizens. Stalin was the chancellor, the the head of... Uh, mm. Dictator, thank you. Of, of Soviet Russia, of, of Russia. Mm. Stalin got in his head in 1948 that the Jewish fight for homeland, that they were going to be socialists, which they were. And if they're going to be socialists, they'll probably be communists. And he preferred Jewish communists in the Middle East rather than the... the um, Democratic Brits. So Stalin funded the War of Independence. Stalin sent Russian pr- troops to fight the War of Independence. If not for Stalin, there would be no Mir Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael today. Stalin won the War of Independence. But let me—there was—the story has a twist. But then Stalin realized that this socialist country was not going to be communist, and he flipped on a dime. And you know what Stalin did in 1953? He made something called the Doctors' Plot. You ever hear about the Doctors' Plot? He accused six doctors of poisoning uh, Russian Russian uh, patients. He had them ch- with trumped-up charges. And Stalin built railroad tracks in Russia to take between two and four million Jews from the heartland of Russia to Siberia. You know how cold it is in Siberia? It's between negative 75 and negative 95 degrees. Within two weeks, Stalin would have killed between two and four million Russian Jews. This plan was set to go into motion March 6th, 1953. You know how long 1953 was? You know how long ago that was? Exactly 70 years. And that year, Purim came out on... And one of the famous sadikim who prisoners in the Russian Gulag, Rabbi Yitzchak Zilber, was reading the Megillah for him and a bunch of prisoners. And they read the story of Purim. And they read about Haman. And Rabbi Yitzchak Zilber said, after he finished reading the Megillah, you see, 2,000 years ago, we had a Stalin, and Hashem turned the tables, and just in the flash of an eye, Hashem saved the Jewish people. So even though in a few days, Stalin has come up with this plan to exterminate Russian Jewry. You never know what could happen. So one of the men in the camp with him laughed. He said, Rabbi, what are you telling these stories, these fairy tales, these nonsensical stories? That happened 2,000 years ago. But Stalin is strong like an ox. When he makes a plan, he carries out the plan. And Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said, at 7.50 p.m., Purim night, Stalin, Stalin is a bastar v'adam. You know what a bastar v'adam is? He's just flesh and blood. Who knows what could happen? He said that at 7.50. At 8.23 p.m., Stalin, who was strong like an ox, stroked out Purim night 70 years ago. The, the, doctor! Doctor! Healed the dictator! No, all the doctors were in jail because of the doctor's plot. Nobody could heal Stalin. Thousands of Jewish inmates escaped that Purim exactly 70 years ago. Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said he had a moral dilemma. Can I die for this Russia? Can I daven for this Russia to die? I know he had a stroke. Can I daven for him to die? And he said, of course I could daven for him to die. And he repeated the Tehillim again and again and again and again and again. Again, the decree was set to go into motion March 6th. On March 5th, 70 years ago, a day before the extermination of Russian Jewry, Stalin dropped dead 24 hours before the potential extermination of the Jewish people of Russia. That was the Purim miracle of 1953. You see how Hashem works? He could take a Stalin and use him for our advantage. Use him to win the war of independence. Use him to gain access to Eretz Yisrael. And the moment Stalin turns, we have a poor miracle 70 years ago. We often get caught up. Who's the president? Who's the prime minister? We need our man in the office. We're only comfortable with this individual. Give Hashem more credit than needing your person or your president or your prime minister to save the Jewish people. The way Hashem operates is sometimes very mysterious. But one thing we know, before Hashem brings a problem, Hashem always creates the solution. And we have to daven to see the solution. We have to daven to earn the solution. We have to daven to be Zocha. Sometimes it's obvious, like in the case of Hagar, Hagar, she was davening, her son was dying of thirst. And then Hashem merely opened her eyes and, he, and she saw the water that was there. The story of Purim gives us so much hope because it teaches us that the solution to our difficulties has already been created by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now not every tefillah is answered right away. The Medrash says some tefillahs are answered in 24 hours. Some take a year. Some take many years. But at least we have the bitachon and the faith that the solution has already been created. Because very often, why we fall into hopelessness because we think there is no way out. When we recognize not only is there a way out, it was already created before. That is the hope. That is the bitachon. That is the faith that we have from reading the perm story. So we hope in our own times when we read the news and we see from all over the world, we have a lot of people who are not our dear friends, whether it's in Iran today, whether it's in North Korea, whether it's in Russia, but we don't feel anxious. We recognize it is easy for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to take the biggest Russia, take His plans, and use it to bring salvation to us. So we hope, we pray, Hashem brings Yeshua's salvation, bracha v'haslacha to all of us, for all of Chal Yisrael, for all of us personally, and I wish you all Frey and Purim and much success in all of your endeavors. Thank you very much.